0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 100 of the Switchfuckers podcast. Crazy to think we're in the hundreds now. Uh, and what better way to use that significant number than to use it on our end of year episode where we go through all the releases of 2019 and, and slot them into suitable categories for celebration. Uh, hopefully giving you some respite from the, the family arguments of the holiday season. In this episode there's uh, me, Andrew, and Craig, our editor, who's going to chip in with his thoughts too. Uh, so let's start with the first category. best game
1: we missed last year. As the Switch gets older and older, and as it gets more and more popular, more and more games have appeared on the eShop, and it's becoming quite difficult to keep up with all of them, and even harder to really look at them and tell which are the good ones and which are the not-so-good ones. Even more so to find those good ones in this massive eShop whose discoverability, as with many other online storefronts, is not great. But I'm gonna give you three that I think are worth spending your money on. For my two runners-up in this category, I've chosen Minute, which is a very briskly-paced game where you play as a strange duck-like creature who lives on an island and picks up a cursed sword one day that makes it so every time one minute of their life goes by, they die and respawn back at their last save point so the goal of the game is to one minute at a time try to get rid of this curse so that way they can go on living their life doing whatever strange duck-like creatures on islands do it's an excellent game and totally worth your time for my second runner-up i've chosen flipping death which is a platformer game with a lot of adventure elements where you play as a young woman who who dies and has her spirit leave her body and ends up interning for death and while doing work for death she has to help the other ghosts around the area with their various problems possibly helping them move on into the afterlife and while she's doing this she finds all kinds of mysterious things going off in the life side half of the world Uh, which involves uh, a ghost that is now running around in her own body. It's a a really cool game. It's a really fun game. It's got a, a great visual style to it. It's got a great sense of humor. If you're a fan of Tim Burton, I think you would enjoy this game. It's just a great adventure game that has a lot of puzzles to it, but doesn't leave you stuck wondering, what the heck am I supposed to do the way many other adventure games can do? But for my... Winner in this category. I have chosen Bloodstained Curse of the Moon, which was a Kickstarter stretch goal for Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which I played and was lukewarm towards, and which Andy has given up on after his many technical. Difficulties with the game and just the fact that he wasn't enjoying it all that much anyway. But where Ritual of the Night is based on the 32 bit games that Castlevania really built its reputation on, Curse of the Moon is a throwback retro platformer based more on Castlevania 3 Dracula's Curse, which is a really excellent NES platformer where you play as a cast of characters trying to navigate the countryside and get into Dracula's castle and defeat him and put an end to the curse and curse of the moon feels very beholden to this where you have your cast of characters and they all have different abilities which allow them to move through these platforming environments and you just switch between them at will with the shoulder buttons it's very fast it's very smooth and it's it's just a great solid platformer that doesn't really try to introduce too much new to the genre it just tries to do what it does very well and i think it definitely accomplished that
0: okay so for best game i missed last year my runners up are diablo 3 and dead cells uh, diablo 3 misses out on this one because i'd already played it once before on ps4 uh, and long before its switch release so i already knew that i loved it uh, i also feel really bad for dead cells too, as no one on the team had really played it prior to last year's end of year show i think it really would have cleaned up in a lot of categories uh but the winner for me in this one is hollow knight Uh, absolutely the best game I missed from 2018. Uh, We all know that I'm the team's Dark Souls tragic uh, and Team Cherry's side-scrolling Metroidvania take on the Souls formula had me absolutely enthralled for weeks. Uh, Hollow Knight is relentlessly grim and oppressive, its world is unfriendly uh, but it still finds a charm in amongst all the darkness. That charm is ever-present in its beautiful hand-drawn art, uh, which is wonderful, Uh, the tone-setting soundtrack and combine that with tight controls, excellent and rewarding power-ups, and a reason to fully explore the map, uh, and it's a game that
2: felt tailor-made for me. Hello, this is Editor Craig. My pick for game that I missed last year is Celeste. Now, there's been lots and lots of hype around it, lots and lots of discussion about it, and I recently picked it up on sale, and I'm working my way through it, but I'm really, really enjoying it. Everything about it seems so tightly designed, so we have very tight controls, and very challenging levels, but they're broken up into small sections, so each screen, Almost seems like a puzzle of first you have to plan out how you're actually gonna get to the other side and then do it there's almost like two parts of each screen but because everything is so tightly designed the controls are so responsive you're never really that frustrated when you die because you never lose much progress and executing that perfect move or however you need to get to the other side there's a lot of satisfaction in planning things out and then executing it perfectly so yeah pick it up
0: Best port or remaster? For best port or remaster, my runners up are Chocobo's Mystery Dungeon, a charming dungeon crawler remastered from the Wii, and Dragon's Dogma, which is a almost flawless port from last gen. It's important that I mention Dragon's Dogma here uh, because, in the first few hours of that game and seeing its open world and busy cities, I had one thought The Witcher 3 could work on Switch. A few months later, the Switcher had become a reality, and uh, that obviously takes my pick for best port. The port itself is a technical miracle, uh, so f- few meaningful concessions made to get The Witch's sprawling open world and all the expansions into the handheld format. Uh, obviously, its visually its fidelity is not sharper or as rich as other formats, but that downgrade has also given it a kind of painterly watercolour effect that, honestly, I, I kind of dig. Uh, and of course, the game itself is undeniably spectacular, uh, the gold standard of RPGs, and it focuses on the adventures of, of Geralt, a monster hunter for hire. While most RPGs promise big worlds and don't really give you a lot to do that's interesting in them, which is a real exception in that regard. Uh, no mission you you take is ever as simple as it seems, and the excellent writing permeates across the entire game throughout all the side quests, uh, and those side quests are as legitimately as interesting as the main plot. It's always a joy. It's also crazy good value. The main game could easily take you 100 hours and the DLC is all here too.
1: The Switch has a well-deserved and well-earned reputation for being a port machine. Most of the games that come out it aren't exclusives. They're games that you can play on other platforms where they probably look better, and they probably play better, and they're probably cheaper, and yet there's just something about the Switch, e- even if it's just something as simple as its portable nature, that makes it a very appealing platform to play these games on. So this is probably the one of the bigger categories of the year for us. Uh, for my runners-up, I've chosen Collection of Mana, which is both just a great value and a trio of three very important games in the history of rpgs you get the game boy final fantasy adventure or mystic quest uh depending upon (laughs) the region you live in and you get the super nes classic secret of mana which actually unfortunately has really begun to show its rust as years have gone on and you also get trials of mana or formerly known as saiken densetsu 3 which was released in the west fully translated and localized by Square Enix for the first time and that's really where the draw of this package I think is but if you're a fan of RPGs or if you grew up playing these RPGs or if you're interested in in playing one of the great lost games of video game culture which is Trials of Mana then you can't go wrong with the collection of mana Uh, For my second runner-up, I chose Dragon Quest XI-S, Echoes of an Elusive Age, Definitive Edition, which is a really beefy RPG. Uh, My full clear of it was 115 hours, and I still have things in it I haven't done, which doesn't really try to reinvent the wheel, which is why I appreciate it. But at the same time, that that does kind of hold it back. There's nothing here for me to really gush about as being new and groundbreaking this is another dragon quest game and if you like dragon quest games this one will not disappoint you if you've never played a dragon quest game before this would be a good one to try to see if you want to look back in the series uh, to look at what's there dragon quest 8 is also great but there's just nothing there to really make it stand out as an rpg aside from its pedigree so dragon quest 11 is great but it's it's nothing more than than great there's nothing more i can say about it past that i think we can all probably guess what my best port is because it's an amazing technical accomplishment we spent the first half of the year saying that it wasn't even possible as rumors swirled that it was coming and then e3 hit and it was just there in the middle of nintendo's e3 presentation just this innocuous little minute-long trailer that blew everybody away because it was happening. Witcher 3, or as it very quickly came to be called, Switcher, was coming to the Switch. It runs more or less the same as the PlayStation 4 version does, Yes, it's a lower resolution, but if you play it in handheld mode, you can barely tell the difference. It's a great-looking game. It's a massive game. It's a really well-thought-out game. It's a game that just keeps on giving, and it even has... A lot of really substantial DLC included in the package. We can't say enough good things about The Witcher 3. Andy and I talked about it for an hour where it was almost the only thing we talked about in that episode was how great this game is. It is easily the best port of the year. This is not an upset. This is not a surprising choice. I'm almost positive Andy has chosen it for his as well. And this is one of the games this year that you should not miss out on. If you haven't played Witcher and, and you can play it on PlayStation 4, you should play it on PlayStation 4. Or if you can play it on PC, you should play it on PC. If you have a Switch and you still want to play Witcher 3 on it, then you should. It's a good port, it's an amazing game, and it's totally worth a second visit. And if you're one of those people who mostly plays their Switch portably, if you have a Switch Lite and it's what you play video games on and you haven't played it yet, you can't miss this game. It is one of the most important games of the generation, and it still holds up here four years down the line, even in this visually reduced state.
2: My pick for the best port is the Castlevania Anniversary Collection. In this collection, you have eight games, and most of them are pretty good, including Kid Dracula, which is the first time it's been released in English, which is a fantastic, originally Famicom game, which is a very cutesy take on the Castlevania formula. It's a lot easier than the other Castlevania games, so it goes with the light-hearted approach too. The highlights for me are probably Super Castlevania IV and Bloodlines, the Mega Drive game. The latter of which I hadn't played until this point, but it's really, really good. And because it's an emulator, you can cheat your way through and get all the way to Dracula. So in the collection, you've got those eight games in the English and the Japanese. You've got lots of options, but... It's a little bit inconsistent, uh, for example, you can ha- for the screen options, you can have the original size, or you can blow up to 4x3, but if you blow up to 4x3, fills the screen, but you have to have scan lines, which kind of darkens the image, so that's a little bit disappointing. However, the games on it are really good. You do get value for money, it's one of those, these games that's constantly going on sale, so if you're interested in it, and it's not on sale at the moment, wait about a month, you can probably pick it up for maybe two-thirds the price.
0: Best Indie
1: Indie titles are really important to the Switch platform, and the Switch platform is really important to indie publishers. Even if a game has been available for years on Steam or on other consoles, invariably it's when the game comes out on Switch, even if it costs a couple bucks more, the game always sells best there. I don't know why that is, but that is what it is. The Switch is a great platform to play indie games on, so which this year are the best picks? For my first runner-up, I've chosen Wargroove, which was a hotly anticipated game. Fans have been following development news of this game for years because it was an internet-accessible follow-up to advance wars which hasn't seen a sequel in over a decade and people really liked advance wars unfortunately intelligent systems possibly encouraged by nintendo were only making fire emblem games unfortunately when wargroove came out it was very poorly balanced (laughs) um it wasn't its difficulty was at a place where uh, the game wasn't very accessible to new players And even me, an Advance Wars veteran, was pretty exhausted by it, which I think might have impacted its popularity and uh, the impression that it left on the gaming scene, because it came out very early in the year, and then it seemed to just kind of go. There are still people playing it, there are still people talking about it, but it, it wasn't the smash success that it's anticipation suggested it it should have been which is unfortunate but i still think it was one of the better indie releases this year and the rebalances they've done on it and they've gotten more content coming out for it with a new campaign coming soon i think it's still worth your time and your money for my second runner-up i've chosen cadence of hyrule crypt of the necrodancer featuring the legend of zelda which is a ridiculous game with a ridiculous title that just appeared at the end of one of Nintendo's collaborations with Indie World. It just appeared at the end of it, and it was mind-blowing because this game was impossible to predict that Nintendo is teaming up with the developers of Crypt of the Necrodancer to make a new Zelda game that is a rhythm music game but is also still, like... A Zelda game it was it's very hard to describe this game and it and the reputation of Crypt of the Necrodancer of being an interesting but grueling roguelike game you know that might be alienating to Zelda fans and also to Nintendo fans who the bulk of Nintendo players are probably skew younger and skew towards more casual this was just an interesting product to appear with with the Zelda franchise and with Nintendo's publisher label on it but when you sit down and you play the game even though it does have those Crypt of the Necrodancer elements to it it still feels like an authentically Zelda experience and bolstered especially by the soundtrack which is the classic Zelda tunes but with more of an indie sensibility brought to it with the new remixes brought to it from the necrodancer developers again like wargroove this is another one which has been supported over the course of the year and there have been small tweaks to it that has made it even more accessible than it already is it can be a somewhat daunting experience because the concept of the game is still that you have to fight monsters in time to music and that can be that can be difficult for some players who are maybe not as coordinated But I still think this is another one that is worth your time, and an indie that was impossible to predict its existence. It is amazing that this game exists at all. But for my overall best indie of the year, I have chosen Untitled Goose Game, which, since it first appeared in an Indie World Direct late last year in 2018, has just been... It looked like a delightful game, and the more we saw of it, the more delightful it looked. And then we finally sat down and we played it. It's just one of those games that you just play with a big old smile on your face the whole time. It's just impossible not to be delighted by this thing. And you play as a mischievous goose who lives in a thicket in a park around outside this quaint little stereotypical English village who every day sneaks into town to cause mischief. You you sneak into a man's garden while he's gardening, and you can steal his hat, and you can tie his, ro- his hose up into knots so he gets sprayed with water, and you can drag his gardening tools into the pond, and he has to chase out after them. And just even more and more situations as you go through this town, as, as you slowly go through this goose's day, and you, you get to an ending which I'll talk about a little bit later in this episode, that completely recontextualizes the entire game and the things you've seen so far and and who this Goose character troll that you're playing as is. Untitled Goose Game is one of the most original concepts we've seen in a long time, which is always the strength of an indie game, and and is a game that is impossible not to be delighted by just from its concept you put this game on and you give somebody a controller they're gonna have a good time it's gonna happen i refuse to believe that somebody wouldn't enjoy this so untitled goose game best indie game of the year
0: so my runners up in best indies uh cadence of hyrule and katana zero well cadence had a Wonderful musical twist on Zelda's classic formula, and Katana Zero was an enthralling, rhythmic, side-scrolling murder simulator with a surprisingly decent story. There was one game that takes its place uh, at the top, and seemingly, it won everyone's hearts. That game is Untitled Goose Game. Uh, There's a lot to be said for games that are short, but good at one thing and do that one thing well, and that's exactly what Goose Game does. Playing as a mischievous goose, being a jerk to everyone as you pass through a quaint English town is just so much fun and a whole cathartic mood in itself. It's uh, light stealth gameplay, often revolving around distracting someone by pinching their stuff, gives you a lot of sandboxy flexibility to achieve a shopping list of jerkery, and while the goose's true goal is just hilarious when you get to it. Short, but ever so
2: sweet. I'm going to have to echo everyone else's thoughts and agree that Untitled Goose Game is the best indie game of 2019. From the concept to the execution, everything about it is just perfectly done, perfectly pitched, and it's so rare to see comedy done well in games. The comedy doesn't just come from cutscenes or people saying funny one-liners. They've created situations where the player really feels like they are creating the comedy, and everything about it is just wonderful. So it seems like, just like everything in The Village... The goose has stolen everybody's heart.
0: Best multiplayer.
1: Okay, so for this category, um, Andy and I are infamously not great on multiplayer gaming. So yeah, we're doing this category, but... (laughs) <laughs> our, our selections in this category should not be indicative that there are not great multiplayer games on switch just that andy and i don't play them like luigi's mansion 3 has multiplayer modes that i, I know for a fact neither andy or i have bothered to touch so that could be a great multiplayer game I, I i just don't know because i have no interest in playing it oh so that's also going to reflect in the games i've chosen Uh, But for my first runner-up, I've chosen Dragon Quest Builders 2, which is an excellent multiplayer game because, well, it's Minecraft, but it's starring Dragon Quest characters and Dragon Quest themes and art design. But just the ability to go onto a bulletin board and look at pictures of what other people have taken and some of the things they have constructed are just mind-boggling. It wouldn't even occur to me some of the things I've seen that they could be built. But more than just looking at pictures of things, you can also go and visit other players' islands, and you can visit their entire island versus just looking at a picture of it, and you can see what they've constructed. And some players have spent hundreds of hours just completely redesigning an entire island into their own themed monstrosity. There was one player who had turned their island into a recreation of Coholent Island from Link's Awakening. That's incredible. And then there's also an aspect of communal building as well. Now that that's well trod minecraft concepts, but Dragon Quest Builders 2 just brings it its own charm to it, and just the thought of having two or more players on your island Just doodling around, doing their own thing, and maybe they run into each other, maybe they don't, and just seeing what accidentally collaborative things they can build together is just fascinating. Uh, This is definitely a game I've chosen less for how interesting it is as a multiplayer game as for a community game. Maybe that's a category we should consider next year instead of best multiplayer is best community. My other runner-up for much the same reason is Super Mario Maker 2, which... I, I, mu- I much criticized this game's true multiplayer mode, which is where you and three other players run through a course and either getting in each other's way or helping each other to clear the level. Let's face it, you're going to be getting in each other's way whether you like it or not. But there is this online tool to create and share levels. Maybe that's not multiplayer, but I do feel like I'm connecting with another player when I play something they created. And when I go online and I find a level that a lot of people are playing and a lot of people are talking about and enjoying and sharing videos of, and I play it myself, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty cool stuff. Or, or I just look at something and I'm like, how how is that even possible with with the kaizu levels, many of which I I don't even begin to understand how somebody could play those levels and and accomplish them. Uh, again. Like with Dragon Quest Builders 2, I've chosen this game more for its community versus its actual multiplayer because, quite frankly, I didn't play many multiplayer games this year. But I did play one game that had a strong multiplayer component, which is what I've chosen for my number one And that is Wargroove, which I mentioned, in the best indie category. One of the big draws for Wargroove as a concept was it was Advance Wars with true online play. Uh, There was one Advance Wars game that did have online play, but it wasn't the best experience because you had to play an entire match in one sitting, and it was exhausting, especially in ways that Advance Wars could be exhausting because matches could last a really long time. And... It could often be boring as well, because you're usually sitting around for quite some time waiting for the next player, waiting for your turn to come back around, because a player who knows what they're doing in Advance Wars is building a lot of units. Wargroup's solution to this was asynchronous multiplayer, where you don't have to be there watching the whole match play. You can make your turn, and then you can end the game, and you can move out of the game and you can play something else and you can wait for the other person to make their turn and the next time you boot up wargroove if your turn is ready there will be a little pop up there that says hey it's time to take your turn this is a revelation for this kind of game online chess games have been doing this since the 90s i don't it should not have taken this long for a game like wargroove to be able to do it but finally it's happened here in the last year of the 2010s there is an online turn-based strategy game for consoles that has asynchronous multiplayer and it also has a map editor and a campaign editor where you can download creations that other people have made that use a pretty robust campaign editor that lets you make everything that could be done in the game's built-in campaign uh but it's all made by other people and there's some pretty creative stuff out there. I I declared at the beginning of the year that I was going to be playing these bonus campaigns and talking about them on the show, uh, but the pace of new releases was so strong and my exhaustion with Wargroove was so pronounced after finishing the campaign, that did not happen. But I have looked. There is some amazing stuff out there, and just the fact that it's on the Switch does not hold anything back. Because there is cross-platform play. There are campaigns that people have made on PC, which, let's face it, that's the best way to make your own campaign. Even if you're going to play it on Switch or PlayStation 4 or wherever you're playing it at, it's just easier to make things on PC. But those campaigns made on PC are available on your Switch, and there are some great ones that rival the base campaign. And Wargroove, if you're a fan of turn-based strategy is the top title on switch
0: so best multiplayer we all know this is typically a weak category for me i'm not a huge multiplayer fan Uh, there are a couple of big exceptions to that i love multiplayer that can impact my single player experience such as dark souls messaging and sense of community so with that dragon's dogma is a runner up here for that very reason with its ability to hire pawns created by other players Uh, i also love fighting games a lot so mortal kombat 11 is an obvious pick here with its solid online mode my winner however is Tetris 99, a battle royale spin on the Tetris formula, which sees you play against 98 other players aiming to survive as the speed gets more intense and as completed lines get added to the boards of someone else. You can strategize who those, bu- those lines go to with simple commands and when their board overflows they're out. I've loved Tetris ever since the original on Nintendo's original handheld, the Game Boy, but I've never been one for score attack games long term here the survival angle and the bite-sized nature of the matches help to make it super Moorish and give me a a goal to achieve each time Uh, and my naming it as my favourite multiplayer
2: game of the year is totally unrelated to the fact that I won a match. Yeah! My pick for best multiplayer game is Wargroove. Advance Wars was one of my favourites back in the day and one of the great things was you could do it asynchronously with one game of Advance passing it back and forth in the back of the car. Now you can do that. You can still pass it forth in the back of the car, or you can pass it back and forth halfway across the world to a different console, which is, which is absolutely amazing. The game is really fun and looks brilliant. The only thing that brings it down is that I am awful at Wargroove. But that doesn't mean it's not fun.
0: Best Riding my top three for best writing was uh, Run Super Close. Uh, we spoke at length in episode 94 as to how consistently strong the writing is in The Witcher 3, even on its side quests, while the very twee Nino Wrath of the White Witch is a close second, thanks to its smart commentary on loss and depression. Uh, they're both older games, though, available on other platforms for years, uh, and another game surprised me more. Uh, that was Katana Zero. Katana Zero is a side-scrolling take on the Hotline Miami formula, uh, from its pre-release PR, I expected a rhythmic one-hit combat, uh, a gorgeous 80s aesthetic and a pumping electro soundtrack, uh, but what I wasn't expecting was for the writing to be so tight. Playing as an assassin who gets his contracts from a shady psychiatrist, it soon becomes clear that nothing is what it seems as a uh, assassin's past is explored and he forms an unexpected friendship in the downtime between each mission. Uh, I highly recommend this one, I don't want to go into too much detail because uh, it's a lot of fun to see it unravel as you go.
1: I'm kind of awful because I, I I say what I like about video games is I like the stories and I like the characters, and then when narrative games come out, I don't play them. I i am always playing platformers and shooters and party games, which are not always notable for their stories, although there are exceptions. Um, so there are many games that came out this year. There there were several Telltale games that came out this year that could have easily landed on the best writing list, but I didn't play them, <laughs> so I can't fairly say that they deserve the award on this list, but I I did play some games that did have some writing worth pointing out. Uh, For my runners-up, I've chosen first Quarantine Circular, which was the follow-up to Subsurf Circular that came out last year that all three of us on the podcast really enjoyed. Quarantine Circular, I, I felt, wasn't quite as good. It was much less focused as it shifted between characters which was confusing because as it was switching characters it meant that i as the player had knowledge that this character i was playing as shouldn't have which was affecting the choices i was making as a package it just it didn't all work but the same elements that made subsurface circular so great are still present here and quarantine circular is still worth checking out and it's a cheap game on top of it uh, for my second runner-up i've chosen dead in vinland true viking edition which is a very character and narrative based survival game about a family of vikings who have to flee their home and end up crash landing in vinland and have to survive while they're being menaced by a local warlord, who shows up once a week to demand things from them, which they then have to work to accomplish in the coming week, lest they incur his wrath. But where the writing really stands out in this game is in the interactions between this family, because you can tell that this is a family of people, but they don't always get along so great, and depending upon how you play and things that may or may not happen over the course of the story campaign, can really drive splinters between what was formerly a very strong family unit. Uh, Dead in Vinland, it's mostly menu-based. There's not really a lot of game to actually play. It's mostly just looking at stats and deciding what the best decision in that moment is. But there is that element of family there that I think Dead in Vinland Really strongly captures. But for the winner of Best Writing, Andy and I talked about this briefly on an episode a few recordings back, where we struggle to give an award to a game that is many years old. Like, I could say that Link's Awakening is one of the best games of the year, and it is, but Link's Awakening is a largely unchanged remake of a game from 1993. Uh, so, <laughs> that that's less a compliment of, you know, Game of the Year 2019 as it is Game of the Year 1993 and it's better than the games that came out 26 years later. Isn't that sad? I had to twist my head around and, and rethink my approach to that. This is a Switch Focus podcast. I'm not complimenting a game that is several years old. I am complimenting what is on the switch in 2019. That is worth paying attention to. And as far as the best written game this year is, even though it's a couple years old and even though it's the strengths of its writing and its themes and its characters are very well known and have been written about at length, they still hold up. Uh, the best written game on the switch this year is the witcher three. It's, uh, stupendously colossal game that still manages to hold together and i don't need to talk about how the side quests are the best thing in the game because we all know this by now Uh, there are no lazy fetch quests in this game every quest is interesting and has stakes and feels like it matters it it doesn't feel like you just met somebody who says please go deliver this letter and then you do it and you get a handful of gold for it and that's the extent of it and i have played several games this year that have those kind of side quests the witcher 3 does not indulge in this kind of quest giving at all every quest is written every quest matters Every quest, whether it's a comedy, or it's a mystery, or it's an adventure, or it's a murder story, or it's a horror story, every quest is worth visiting and paying attention to. Witcher 3 is the best written game on the Switch in 2019, regardless of how well it may
2: have been in 2015 as well. So for best writing, I'm going to go for quite a wide meaning of the word writing and I'm going to go with a game that's just recently appeared on the eShop and might have gone under the radar called Kukiyomi, Consider It. And it's a game that I was very surprised to actually see localized. So essentially, it's a game where you have to look at the situation without instruction, consider what the most appropriate thing to do is. So essentially, it plays out like WarioWare, but it's a lot more calm. You, are, you control the red character. It might be a bird, it might be a person, it might be a domino. You're given a situation, and within three or four seconds, you have to do what is appropriate, and then the game ends. And through that, it creates lots of these little stories, and it's got such a great sense of humour about it. It's very quirky and very odd. To give you an example of one of the games, you are sitting on the subway. To the left and to the right of you, there's a space for someone to sit. Standing in front of you is a couple. Now, you've got to look at the situation and think, well, they probably want to sit next to each other, so I'll move along. It's often a game about being kind and being considerate, which I like, but there are recurring jokes and recurring themes, so you'll see one game that was very easy at the start, but then there'll be a bizarre twist on it later, so it has a very calming effect, very disarming, and then every five seconds or so, it essentially gives you a short story. You've got to read the situation and act very quickly, and just the escalation of some of these stories is really good. It's really cheap, it's kind of short, but it'll take you maybe an hour, and it's just a kind of pleasant experience to go through
0: best soundtrack I'm
1: the worst person to ask about music because quite often I don't notice music in in movies and in games and even in just straight up music in popular culture I I'm not kidding when I say that pop- that popular music today... Oh, I sound like such an old person, but popular music today sucks. Uh, music hasn't been good in at least 20 years, if not longer. And then I watch movies, and I come out the other end of a movie, and I can't remember any of the music in it, even though it's supposed to, you know, inform the drama of a scene or the, the emotion of a scene. And I feel the same way about video games. I, I play a lot of video games, and I, I don't remember any music coming out of it, even though, you know, I should have that music drilled into my head after playing a game for 20 hours. Why can't I remember it? This might just be a shortcoming of me. I I, I don't have a musical background, so maybe I just don't appreciate it the way I should, or maybe it, it's just a block that I have, but I'm just not a music guy, which comes into trouble when I have to pick three games With outstanding soundtracks at the end of the year, especially since the metric I use is which of these games that I've played have music that I can still recall at the end of the year, uh, which is going to raise some eyebrows at my choices, uh, because for my runners-up I've chosen The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening remake, which takes the fantastic Game Boy soundtrack from 1993 and reperforms it with live instrumentation and it sounds great. <laughs> and for my other runner up is Super Mario Maker 2, which r- flat out reuses a lot of music tracks from classic Mario games that I've been playing all my life since the 1980s. Uh but also which is why I feel this choice is justified has new tracks as well which capture you know this this synesthetic effect of you know like an ice level because the original Mario Brothers didn't have an ice level so when they introduced an ice theme in this game they had to compose new music for the standard Mario Brothers ice levels and it sounds like what it would have been had the original Mario Brothers had an ice level so those classic tunes still hold up, and there's new tunes that go alongside them that feel like the music that should have been there to begin with. Super Mario Maker 2, absolutely. Uh, it was great music 30 years ago, it's great music today. And then for my my best choice is Cadence of Hyrule, Crypt of the Necrodancer, featuring The Legend of Zelda, which is electronic remixes of music I've been listening to for 30 years. Judge me if you have to. I don't care. This is how I feel. And these are the choices I've made.
0: Uh, best soundtrack is another tough category for me, especially with Katana Zero's pumping 80s soundtrack uh, and Cadence of High Rules' playful takes on Zelda's classic tones. Uh, but the clear winner for me was Ori and the Blind Forest. Formerly an Xbox exclusive, Ori released as part of Microsoft and Nintendo's blossoming relationship, and it's a perfect fit for uh, Nintendo's handheld. This being a pick here for me is a bit of a cheat, because while I did play Ori earlier this year, I did so as part of Xbox Game Pass, in the wake of Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night being such a horrendous, broken mess. And that was one of the best decisions I made this year. Uh, I've been particularly enamoured with its soundtrack by Gareth Coker, which is ambient, orchestral, and just utterly beautiful around. Capturing the tone of Ori's twisted, intriguing world absolutely perfectly. The best track on here, by the way, is Restoring the Light, Facing the Dark. Check that out on Spotify. I use it to write to very often.
2: I've got to give a special shout-out to Wargroove because it has so many different character themes, and each of those character themes is so wonderful to listen to, but also perfectly represents each character they're going for. And shameless plug, but I've made some chiptune remakes of some of those uh, pieces, so you can check them out on YouTube. Now, for the soundtrack of the air, I'm going to have to go for... Uh, Shovel Knight King of Cards. Now a lot of the music involved isn't new, but it was great the first time, and then the composer has not only taken those tracks, but he's made remixes of so many of them, keeping the spirit of the original, but expanding them, giving them a different feel. So when you're visiting the same area two or three times, you've got essentially the same piece of music playing, but different remixes, and because it's all done in the same chiptune style, it all ties together really well. It's amazing how he can remake the same track so many times, find something new to do with it and not get bored. I could put on pretty much any of those tracks and do a silly little dance like Plague Knight.
0: Best sound design. So for best sound design, my run as up a Super Mario Maker 2, which is not only because of the classic Mario nostalgia, but because of all the amazing things that people do in the creator with the music blocks, and Cadence of Hyrule because of its amazing remixes of my favourite Zelda track. The only possible winner for this category, however, uh, can only be Untitled Goose Game. The use of sound and music is sparse, Uh, but when it is used, it's used brilliantly. And this is especially true of when the goose's mischief is escalating, when you're running away from some poor, unsuspecting sucker's property to dump it in the river. And that's when the erratic piano fits perfectly with the mischief you're creating. Lovely stuff. Sound design
1: is really important in game development. It's really important in the process of playing a game. When you're playing like a first-person shooter and you hear... A specific gunshot and and you know just from that sound what weapon your enemy is using and that lets you prepare this is a big part of competitive shooters online that is sound design in action so a well developed game with good sound design is a game where what you hear is at least as important as what you're seeing uh left for dead is also another good example where if you're listening well you can tell what kind of supercharged zombie is coming around the next corner Uh, so important in fact that if you're playing with the closed captioning on it actually has those things on there that they have audio descriptions describing those sounds because the developers knew that this sound design they had made was so important that they even had to put it in there for deaf and hard of hearing people or people who just play with the sound off because these sound cues were so important to the process of playing the game but much less with music i i don't feel fully equipped to make selections here so i don't have any runners up i only have just a clear choice uh because it was the most obvious answer so Maybe Craig, who is our sound guy, has more interesting choices for this category, but I chose Untitled Goose Game, uh, because the sound design in this is just incredible, just the honk of the goose is delightful, and the fact that they gave a honk button uh, is genius, Uh, but what really won sound design for this one on me is, is how the game uses its music. In Untitled Goose Game, you do play as a mischievous goose, just going around this village causing chaos. But it's largely a silent game. There's a lot of ambient noise until you do something with the goose. Like, you pick up the gardener's hat and you run away, and suddenly this absolutely delightful piano track just starts playing in while you're running away from the gardener, and he's chasing after you with the angry clouds over his head. And it takes this moment of levity and just really elevates it like you're watching an old Mickey Mouse cartoon where the music is playing along with his actions. It it took this moment that would be enjoyable enough on its own, but just when you go from silence to mischief with this piano track playing that says, yes, what's happening right now is hilarious. Untitled Goose Game was absolutely masterful use of its sound to not only enhance the game itself, but to enhance the humor in it and to really elevate
2: the feeling of being the world's worst goose. Again, echoing everyone else's comments, but the Goose Game has it. Kind of like Breath of the Wild, it had moments of silence. It had moments of just little bits of piano. And the Goose Game, it's kind of the same way. It's not just that it has these great big crescendos of it's that pulls back as well. So it knows how to support what's going on. Not just by not just by emphasizing the chaos, but also by emphasizing the silence, emphasizing the calm bits. So you have that greater level of contrast between peaceful tranquility and terrible goose.
0: favorite announcement
1: i think more so than other platforms especially sony and microsoft nintendo's announcements have become kind of events in the gaming community when there's a nintendo direct people are watching uh when there's some other award show like especially the game awards going on nintendo's announcements seem to be waited for with much more bated breath than with the others uh so this is a fun category and for my two runners-up, I've chosen Cadence of Hyrule, because it was impossible to predict, and The Witcher 3, which nobody predicted. In fact, we said it couldn't be done, and yet these both these things appeared and they blew everybody's minds. But for my favorite announcement, I've chosen Breath of the Wild 2, because as I've described in the podcast in the past, 2017 was a really rough year, and... I would have gotten through it, but I don't know how I would have gotten through it, foremost without my Switch, but also with Breath of the Wild, which, with everything that was happening and the way I was I was feeling about the world and my place in it, to have Breath of the Wild, which is not only the best game of 2017, but was the best game I've ever played, that really helped me in a time when I needed it. And... With Breath of the Wild 2 now having been announced, and with what the world now seems to be heading towards, I take some solace in knowing that even if it's not better than Breath of the Wild, or even if it's not my new favorite game of all time, at least I have something like that experience that might remind me of how I felt in March of 2017. That really helps me. It's nice being surprised by games you didn't predict and games that you said couldn't be done, but knowing that Breath of the Wild 2 is coming, that helps me too, and that's why it's a very important announcement for me.
0: For favourite announcement, my runners-up here are Witcher 3, because even though I dared to dream that it would come beforehand, I wasn't sure it would actually happen. Uh, And Breath of the Wild 2, uh, which I think most would assume would have taken my top pick here, but instead I'm going to give it to a different Zelda game instead. And not even Link's Awakening. It's for, well, to give it its full name, Cadence of Hyrule, Crypt of the Necrodancer, featuring Legend of Zelda. Uh, The announcement had everything, a hint of its true nature, the reveal of Cadence waking up in a strange land... Uh, but one that's familiar to a lot of Nintendo fans. Uh, And the Absolutely Boss remix by Danny Baranoski, timed perfectly with Cadence of rules gameplay mechanics. It was also a huge surprise to see Nintendo allowing another developer, an indie developer for that matter, getting weird with one of their most important properties. A great announcement all round.
2: So my favourite announcement of the year was one that everyone kind of saw coming. We were just kind of waiting for it. And it was the SNES games, or Super NES games, Super Nintendo games, Super Famicom games, whatever you want to call them. Coming to the Nintendo Online Service, my first console was an NES, but I was probably too young for that at the time, so my biggest memories are of the Super Nintendo, so big memories of Link to the Past, Super Mario World, uh, Super Pro Protector, which is Contra 3, which later came out in the Konami collection. So I was thrilled to see that this came, and also, they didn't rip-feed like two SNES games a month, they just, right from the start, 20 games, some not so great, but... You've got the big hitters, you've got the Mario World, you've got uh, Super Metroid, you've got a few Kirby games. The games that you want to play on Super Nintendo, a lot of them are there. Obviously, there's always going to be more that people want, but it was a great start. And and I was just really happy to be able to play Super Nintendo games on my Switch.
0: Favourite moment. Uh, my favourite moments this year have included the pre time skip twist in Fire Emblem Three Houses, which completely left me reeling and desperate for revenge, uh, and seeing The Witcher 3 in action, particularly when you trot into the village of White Orchard for the first time, in the palm of your hand, and seeing it work just as well as it does, on other platforms. It was amazing. My absolute favourite moment however is a more selfish one and that's winning that match in Tetris 99. You see the odds are always against you in battle royale games even for those really good players uh, so to win one feels incredibly incredibly special especially when the game is so intense and gets so fast-paced that you don't even know it's happened. My initial reaction to my win when the match ended was one of confusion. I thought I'd disconnected or lost even though my board was nowhere near filled but no I'd won. Uh, and that is what qualifies it as being my favorite gaming memory this year.
1: Usually when we talk about video games, we're talking about them in a very broad sense, you know, this this broad collective feeling that a specific game gave us. But it, it's really in the individual moments that we're describing what made us really love a game, whether it's an especially notable set piece or a really well-crafted cutscene or story beat, or just maybe this serendipitous moment of a game glitching or just the game behaving in a way that nobody predicted that happened to you specifically. These are the moments that always really take off on social media now that it's so easy for us to capture game video and share it with people. So the favorite moments category is really special, and this this is really where... Gaming as a social experience, even if you're playing a solo game, this is where it really happens. For my runner up, now in Dragon Quest II, you spend most of the game going to these large islands that have a large story going on on them that you have to slowly work your way through as you work towards the end of the game. And on each of these islands, you're meeting this community of people who have just been destroyed by by the monster that's threatening this world. And they're very downtrodden, and they've just internalized what this monster has told them, that building is bad, and the builder is evil. But as you work through these island stories, you start to slowly turn these people towards your side, as, you know, you you take these starving people and you build them a kitchen. They realize, oh, building's not so bad. You, You build them a house for them to sleep in so they don't have to sleep outside. Oh, building's not so bad, you know, on and on and on. And at the end of each island, after you've won the community over to your side, they take it upon themselves to just build an absolutely massive project inspired by the builder. That if the builder and the player were to do it themselves, it would take hours Uh, It would probably be fun to some extent, but it would take a lot of grinding, a lot of farming, and it would just take forever to do themselves. But when you have an army of several dozen NPCs to do it for you, and you can literally kick back and watch it happen over the course of several minutes... It's is absolutely delightful, and it's amazing to see these huge structures that they build brick by brick, and you actually watch them run back and forth between the item chest and where the item needs to go, so you can watch these buildings being built brick by brick. Uh, it, it's incredible to see every time it happens, and there there are several chapters where this happens, but it's the first island, I think, where... You come to this blighted farmland, and you have to slowly rebuild the area and cure it of this famine. And then at the end, the villagers all gather together, and they build literally the Tree of Life. Like, the Tree of Life is always a fixture in many RPGs, especially Dragon Quest. Uh, So to see it being built brick by brick is pretty incredible and it's a massive structure it's several stories tall there are thousands of blocks in this and it's got water flowing down it and it's a tree so to see it being built is pretty amazing and it was the moment that i sat down watching and i was like i love this game and this is definitely one of the best games i've played this year that was the moment when i i knew but there was one other game this year that had a moment that I remembered more and that's the ending of the untitled goose game and I don't want to give it away because it's so delightful but we talked about this in our untitled goose game episode back in October or September whenever it was when you emerge from the bush's little home in its thicket look around the area before you head into the village and ask questions about what you see there Because when you get to the end of the village, it will make what is happening even funnier. And it will make you realize something about this goose and the type of life this goose leads and its relationship with the village that makes this game even more delightful than it already is. I know I keep using that word with the Untitled Goose game, but it was
2: delightful. It was. Play this game. My favourite moment of the year in four words. Press Y to honk.
0: Biggest Surprise Okay, so my runners-up for Biggest Surprise include Cadence of Hyrule's existence and the extent of Microsoft's blossoming relationship with Nintendo. But my winner here is a bit of a deep cut, so stay with me. Uh, Step forward, Hotline Miami Collection. Uh, the Hotline Miami collection was released in August as the final announcement in a Indie World showcase, on the, and it was out the same day. This caused some confusion for those of us down under in Australia, uh, for whom Hotline Miami 2 in particular had been banned for some time due to implied sexual violence in the opening. Uh, sure enough, though, it was on the store. Uh, it still hadn't been okayed by the Australian Classifications Board, uh, so I bought it just in case. And sure enough, it It seemed that I managed to get it 15 minutes before it got pulled. Uh, You can hear about what I thought about it in episode 88, but I had a great time with the collection, revisiting the original, and finally getting to sample the sequel for the first time.
1: It's always nice to be surprised by a game, especially in today's ecosystem, where so many of the major publishers just don't take risks anymore because game development is so expensive and takes such a long time that they literally can't afford to take risks if a game doesn't sell well then it can literally close the studio it's not a great situation for anybody but that does mean that when there are surprises they are especially surprising so my first runner up on biggest surprise was ukulele in the impossible lair just the fact that this game was announced was surprising because ukulele was not a well-received game and i don't think it was a particularly well-selling game and yet here was a sequel and not only was it a sequel it was a sequel that seemed to be taking off of donkey kong country instead of a 3d platformer and then i played it and i was like oh wait this game is actually really good (laughs) so ukulele and the impossible lair exists and was way better than the first game My second runner-up was the Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Of course, surprising because I myself said that the Switch could not do Witcher 3. Please quit suggesting it for a port. And not only did a port appear, but it was also pretty good. Also defying my suggestions that, yes, there is a Witcher 3 port, but it probably won't run very well. It'll probably kill your battery. It Actually, the battery lasts about the same amount of time that Breath of the Wild does. Uh, It'll probably take forever to load. It takes about the same amount of time that PlayStation 4 takes to load. There will probably be map buffering. There is no map buffering. (laughs) This is an amazing port, as I said previously, and a huge surprise that not only that it exists, but it's as good as it is. But my biggest surprise of the year would be Cadence of Hyrule, Crypt of the Necrodancer featuring The Legend of Zelda. As I said back in the Best Indie category... Who would have suspected that this game would even appear? You know, a collaboration between an indie studio and Nintendo with one of Nintendo's biggest franchises. Uh, And it's a pretty good indie game. So, yeah, huge surprise there.
2: Uh, And I hope 2020 has a lot of surprises for us as well. Nintendo generally do a really good job of keeping things under wraps. The favorite surprise I saw was Cuphead. From the first time I saw it on Xbox One, I wanted to play it, it looked amazing. So to have it released on Switch, I was really surprised, but also thrilled. However, due to time constraints and life, I still haven't bought it. But I'm happy to know that it's there on the eShop, waiting for me when I feel like it's time to get punished in a cartoony way
0: visual design. Okay, my runners-up for best visual design are Untitled Goose Game, uh, with its simplistic colours and general design and Katana Zero, thanks to great pixel art and its use of colour. My favourite visual design, however, is The Link's Awakening Remake. I can't explain how happy the original game made me back on the original Game Boy. I've played it countless times over the years, uh, so it's a little emotional to see it in action and remastered. While I'd have been so happy with any sort of modernizing of Link's Awakening. I'm I'm glad they kept the intent of the original visuals uh, and just brought it to life. Link and the inhabitants in this version of COLIN Island look like adorable little toys and it just works so well and is so incredibly charming. It's the best of both worlds for me. It looks exactly how Link's Awakening lived in my head when I was a child, but just fully realized, full of color and full of life. I adore it. Now the
1: Switch is obviously not the most powerful platform out there, so... You might think that the best visual design category is kind of a waste because everything that's going to be on the Switch is not going to look as good as it would on any other platform, obviously. Well, not necessarily, because I argue that the best design comes not from unlimited power, but from constraint when developers are forced to simplify what they're doing and scale back on their ambitions. It increases creativity, and it pushes the boundaries of what is possible on the platform. So if you ask me if you want to see the most visually interesting stuff out there right now, you don't want to be looking at the Xbox One with its amazing teraflops of power. You want to be looking at the Switch, at the more modest games that are focusing less on Amazing lighting and high fidelity graphics and oh my god these look like real people and looking more towards art design and Animation because there's really good examples on switch this year for my first runner-up. I've chosen Blasphemous which is this really striking Which is a really striking looking game. It draws a lot of its influence from gothic paintings It's a game that looks much better in screenshots, than it does in action. The animation doesn't quite live up to the strengths of its design, but if you look at this game captured in single images, it looks absolutely incredible. For my other runner-up, I've chosen Ni no Kuni, Wrath of the White Witch*, which uh, this is kind of has the unfair advantage of having a lot of its character design and its world design done by Studio Ghibli. But when I'm walking through a village in Nino Kuni, and I just see this this dense cluster of just stuff strewn everywhere, a lot of the times in games things are very uniform. You know, there's a pot, and there's a pot, and there's a pot, and then there's a door. Uh, I'm looking at you, Dragon Quest. But Nino Kuni, the the areas in the towns, they look very lived in. They look very chaotic. They look like stuff was just strewn there in a corner because that's a garbage pit people don't care about and there's a garden in somebody's front yard that's pretty well tended but they've got some pots sitting in a corner filled with dirt and they've just left some yard tools just lying in a corner there's a lot of great little detail like that in the lived-in areas of this game and then there's the characters themselves which have a very hand-drawn quality to them it's not quite like *Nina no Kuni* two, which came out last year. And if you look at that game in action, even though it's a 3D game, it looks a lot like an anime. Uh, you can tell they were reaching for that in *Nina no one, but the technology just wasn't quite there yet where they could do it. But the characters—they still look really good. They—they they look like a 3D kind of anime portrait brought to life. It's a great-looking game, and has a lot of great character design and a lot of great uh, world design in it. But where all these things come together, which is character design and world design and the quality of its animation, and animation is where things are really elevated and really bring spirit to a character in a video game. For this year I've chosen as my best visual design game is Luigi's Mansion 3 because It's just an incredibly well-animated game, especially when you're looking at Luigi, whose nose bounces as he walks forward, and just his reaction to everything that happens around him really makes you get into this character and understand where Luigi is coming from and how he's feeling in that moment. Uh, just, Just for the performance that Luigi puts on for you alone,
2: Luigi's Mansion 3 is the best visual design this year. I've got a lot of time for really nice pixel art. And for that reason I'm gonna go with Wargroove. you have got these wonderful character portraits and some unfortunately long battle animations that end up getting turned off for many people but I love the fidelity of it, I love I love pixel art that's allowed to go wild outside of the traditional limitations. The designs of the dragons and the warriors and of course the dogs and the way everything is animated I've got a lot of love for the way Wargroove looks.
0: game of the year runners up okay i think it's uh, fair to say that i've i've been a lot more uh positive on nintendo's first party stuff uh, than andrew has this year uh so i liked most of what they they released and I, I really struggled with picking a favorite uh so my first runner up is the Link's awakening remake uh it just Played with my nostalgia so well. Uh, even when I came into it, I, I knew the map like the back of my hand. I just loved every second of revisiting it. I'm, I'm really glad they they came back to this. My second runner-up is Marvel Ultimate Alliance Three, uh, a button-bushy Diablo clone with Marvel characters. I'm a huge comics fan, and and although the the story you know doesn't reflect what I read in the comics or see in the movies, uh, I enjoyed it as a, a, a mindless trip through uh marvel locations
1: i kind of liked 2017 because this category was really easy to pick in 2017 uh i had a lot of choices this year and i i had a lot to think about because there were a lot of great games this year uh but not one of them really stood out as being the obvious choice for my game of the year. So I could have picked any number of things, and I would have felt bad about what I was cutting out. Or I I could have just expanded the category and just listed at length all the great games that came out this year. But I wanted to not do that. I wanted to challenge myself this year and actually make tough decisions so i had to rethink my philosophy on this and as great as dragon quest 11 is i'm never going to play that game again barring <laughs> barring a port on a future platform I, I i'm a sucker for that kind of stuff so i, I might play it that way but am i ever going to plug in my switch cartridge again on dragon quest 11 no i'm probably not the same thing for witcher 3 I, i'm knee deep in witcher 3 right now i i still have 100 hours to go in it i think But once I get through that 100 hours next year, am I ever going to play Witcher 3 again on my Switch? I don't think so. So with that in mind, I thought, what games came out this year that I loved and that I will also still be playing in 2020 and in 2021 and in 2022? And that made my choices a lot easier. So for my first runner-up, I chose Dragon Quest Builders 2. Uh, which was a game that I really loved playing, and I love existing in, but the campaign is so long, The, the, the story is so long, and the game doesn't really let you do everything until you finish that story, and several points the story intrudes on what you're trying to do, like if you're trying to take just a break from the story and just go back to your personal island and just build stuff for a while suddenly at certain points of the game the story will just just grab you and just force you to go back to the story it was very frustrating and so that 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 did hold the game back a little bit from its maximum potential but once you get to that sandbox at the end game go away minecraft dragon quest builders 2 is just an amazing thing where you're, you're building whatever you want if you want to or there's even this long checklist of things you can work through and if you do all the side quests you don't even have to go out and form materials you can just have infinite versions of most of the valuable building materials so you can just build to your heart's content without worrying about Things like having to stop and gather more materials, which was a big problem in the first Dragon Quest Builders game. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to give Dragon Quest Builders 2 the kind of time that other people do where they're building these phenomenal creations because I am doing this podcast and I am trying to keep up with all the new releases. That cuts into my time, but I aspire to keep playing Dragon Quest Builders 2. I want to keep playing this game, which is more than I can say for Dragon Quest 11. My other runner-up I've chosen for very similar reasons. It's Super Mario Maker 2. Uh, Great building tools here. There's an endless supply of content being supplied by brilliant level designers from all across the world, many of whom, quite frankly, should be working professionally in game design, but the industry is just not set up for, A, this number of people, and B, people who don't have the professional or educational background to actually get into those things, but they are there, and if the indie market were more fair and if the professional game design market was more accessible, these people would be very well-respected and probably making a pretty good living for themselves. Lucky for us, they're here giving us the fruits of their labor for free. So Super Mario Maker 2 does have some problems. Nintendo has just a stranglehold on the community. They are limiting the number of levels you can download, and they are arbitrarily deleting things off of the server without telling people why. That is going to be a problem in the long run. It's going to limit Mario Maker 2's life in the long run. It's going to It's going to keep Nintendo in control, which I'm sure is the intention. They don't want us playing Super Mario Maker 2 for the next 30 years the way people have been playing Super Mario Bros. 3 for 30 years. They want us playing Mario Maker 3 and Mario Maker 4 and Mario Maker 5, and never mind the brilliant levels that were made in Mario Maker 1 and Mario Maker 2. They want us playing the new things, which is a pity, and that's why Mario Maker 2 is not my game of the year, even though it easily could be. But even having said that, What's there is amazing, and Nintendo is still giving us new content drops. Another one just came out two weeks ago that adds Legend of Zelda content and more Mario stuff that hadn't been included in the games up until now, which people have already made absolutely brilliant things that you wouldn't conceive of and that Nintendo hasn't even conceived of. There's stuff in Mario Maker you would never see in a standard Mario game because Nintendo with their conservative design just just never went there but Mario Maker 2 is amazing, their community is one of the best communities in video games and it's a great game that I highly recommend even in spite of Nintendo's control of it
0: Game of the Year Actual Game of the Year um is this actually pokemon sword and shield uh, the reason for this is the uh the way i play games is that i, I run through them i finish them and i drop them for the next thing it, it's very rare that i finish a game and i just want to keep playing it uh pokemon sword in particular uh had me doing that and the second i finished it i knew i wanted to try and complete this pokedex uh even if just chipping away at it a bit at a time uh, and that's what i've been doing since as for the game itself i, I I came into the Pokemon series pretty late, uh, Pokemon Black was my, my first one, uh, and since then uh, Pokemon X and Y was my favourite in the series, I think this is this has overtaken it. Uh, it's impossible for me to say any of the older ones are better because, you know, just going from a modernised version to an old one, it just feels clunky and slow and sluggish and you, you just can't compare experiencing it at the time of release. Um but this one I, I enjoyed the english setting so much uh, i found the story enjoyable although i have some caveats where they they don't want to show you the coolest things that are happening you you're just laser focused on your progression as, as the pokemon trainer but uh, one one of the main things that i love so much about it was was that uh, the wild area and just going back i would get stuck there for hours just you know Going for a quick look and then just constantly going, oh, what's that over there? And running and trying to catch it and beat it. um And that's I'm still spending a lot of time there post completion as well. So, yeah, that's what that's why it's my favorite game of the year. It's just I still have that pull to go back to it, and I I, I want to complete everything there is to do.
1: Now, as I said, the
0: philosophy
1: I applied to choose my games of the year this year was: which games am I still going to be playing in years to come? That made picking Dragon Quest Builders 2 and Super Mario Maker 2 a little bit easier. Uh, but for my third one, it was a game that I just I couldn't knock off my list. E- even with my feelings about, you know, am I still going to be playing this? Is this a game that that warrants being played for 50 and 100 and 200 and 500 hours? Probably not. But is it still the best design game I've played this year? Yes. Uh, is this... Still a game that for what it costs and what it gave me, I am more satisfied with it than any other game that came out this year, yes. Uh is it a game that let me do things I never thought I would be able to do in a video game and introduced things that I'd never seen in a game before? Yes. Is it a game that I in multiple At multiple points in this Game of the Year episode I described as delightful, yes, uh, my Game of the Year this year is Untitled Goose Game. Uh, It is a surprise, a delight. The goose is one of the best new characters in video games in decades I I want to play Untitled Goose Game (laughs) 2. If they want to go full goat simulator with this thing and just just make an entire world of just nonsense with people, I can just spend all my time just ruining their time. Take five years and make it. I'll still buy it. Untitled Goose Game was the standout title of this year. Uh, Even if you only play it for four hours, like I did, I... think if you're anything like me you'll come out that other four hours happier with Untitled Goose Game than you were with anything else you played this year.
2: My game of the year is Shovel Knight King of Cards. Now it's a bit of a biased choice. A few years ago I had a friend who actually moved away to join Yacht Club games to help out on this game. So ever since he moved away I've been waiting for this game and it's really really good. There's so many There's so many little touches in the animation, in the music, in the gameplay. It makes it better than Shovel Knight, better than Plague Knight, better than uh, Specter Knight. Every time one of these expansions drops, I go through the same thing. I play through the level. If I haven't found all the secrets in the level, I go straight back in there. And and now with King Knight, with the secret exits, I'm finding the secret exits. But before I'm going any further, I'm going right back in that level and exhausting it, making sure I've found every single thing, turning every little stone. It arrived quite late in the year, but I've spent but I spent 16 hours unlocking everything on my save file, so I've I got all the hidden exits, all the merit badges, all the, all the Joustus cards. The platforming's really good. I got consumed by Joustice. The difficulty's fair. Uh, the music's really good. It looks amazing. And the writing's really, really tight and funny, and it portrays King Knight as a completely unsympathetic, terrible spoiled character which is good because he's a king well he's not a king all he wants to be is a king he doesn't deserve to be a king going through your adventure having more and more people join your airship joining you on uh joining you on your adventure completely undeservedly so it just it keeps setting up jokes and hitting them out of the park so yeah king knight consumed my life for about a week and it was time well wasted
0: And that's it for 2019. Thank you for listening to the last year of Switch Focus Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please uh, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get noticed. You can also listen on Stitcher TuneIn and other podcast services. Uh, We're also on Spotify now, by the way. Uh, Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively Switch Focus community. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. The links for those are in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can buy us a coffee. The details are on our website. Thanks in advance. This episode was edited by Craig Windle. Uh, also known as Craigiddy Craig on Twitter and you can follow him with his music career at Windmills at dawn. Uh, you can follow the three regular panellists on Twitter individually. You can follow me at Flame Roast Toast. You can follow Andrew at Play Critically. He also streams at twitch.tv forward slash playcritically uh, and you can follow Ginny at Ginny Woes. And with that we're on hiatus Christmas holidays and we'll be back sometime in January. See you then. Well to give it its full name, Cadence of Hyrule, Crypt of the Necrodancer, featuring legend of the Necrodancer, featuring legend of Hyrule, Crypt of the Necrodancer, featuring legend of the Necrodancer, featuring legend of Hyrule, Crypt of the Necrodancer, featuring legend of Zelda.